and you're listening to the Collabcast, a podcast about pop culture and the creative life from an Asian American perspective. Tell me if I'm going too far. Tell me if I'm going too far. Do you like this? Because I can see the love in the dark. Yeah, I can feel the beat in your heart. You like this? Tell me if I'm going too far. Tell me if I'm going too far. Do you like this? Because I can see the love in the dark. Yeah, I can feel the beat in your heart when you get excited. Hey everyone, welcome to the Clubcast, episode 60, I think 6? Six? 6? Six? 66, yeah. I mean, I, I, that sounds like the I don't know why I'm asking somebody you. who runs the podcast. I should but. know this. Welcome to the Clubcast. <laughs> My name is Marvin Yui, I am your host, and I'm joined this week by Sean Mira, making his triumphant tying run for the most appearances on this podcast. Tying? Who am I tied with? I think you're tied with Jenny. Oh, Jenny Yang. <laughs> All Wait, right. do I get half credit for Sean? Because I feel like I'm also a guest, so that should like count against Sean. Oh, I didn't. I, didn't I, I think we should just I move on to the next, the next <laughs> guest. Shamir, of course, is the you're not the director. You're the producer, I'm the, lead producer. I'm the producer and lead curator of Tuesday Night Cafe, uh, the longest running open mic in Little Tokyo, in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles. Not not open mic, longest running Asian American performance mic series in the nation. I should really be more prepared it's fine for it's really okay even i get that <laughs> he's a big deal apparently that's that's what a that really means. big deal according to sean <laughs> and joining sean this week is audrey quo the executive director of api equality la 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 and there's uh, an api equality in northern california too are they you guys part of the same we're like siblings we get along we do some collaboration Okay. I just Yay. winked. Everyone know that I winked at my bad joke. <laughs> uh, Audrey is also part of the collective um, called Protect Koreatown that yes. is um, fighting against gentrification in the Los Angeles Koreatown area. So we'll talk more about that later in our feature segment. But yeah, thanks for joining me, I guess, this week. Minji's not here. She's off hanging out with Barry out in D.C. being all special and stuff. Barry, Barry POTUS, Obama, the yeah. POTUS. Yeah. Right now, as as we record right now, she's actually at the Apex Gala, which is the big Asian Asian prom. prom. Hanging out with Aziz Ansari and POTUS and Mrs. POTUS. Yeah, the whole gang. Yeah. They're all there. Flotus, the Flotus. As I was told that Tuesday Night Cafe was Asian prom, and now I feel cheated. I think we're like... I think we're like the... the Spring formal. The Asian cool kids table... At prom. At pr- not at prom. Like, you know, at lunch, every first and third Tuesday, you would go to lunch and there would be like a table of the cool Asian American kids. I think that's like us. I grew up in the Bay Area, so like 50% of my high school is Asian. Oh, well. Also, it wasn't that I, cool. Well, there were cool Asians and there were like not so cool Asians. I hung mm-hmm. out by myself near a tree. The same tree? Uh yeah, there was like one tree. I I wasn't it it wasn't that I was uncool. It was just I definitely was not cool. <laughs> Slash this was in Jersey, right? This was in Jersey. This was in Milburn, New Jersey where I we were known for having invented ultimate frisbee. Invented ultimate school. frisbee. Yep, Are you Milburn actually taking credit for that. If you go on Wikipedia and you look up Milburn High School, was credited. it you? Was it just you in the tree throwing a frisbee back and forth? No, but fun fact, all of the Asian American kids played ultimate frisbee, and so everyone assumed I played ultimate frisbee when really I was just either on the steps 
or by a tree. I feel like that's a step up from everyone assuming you're good at math or, you know, karate. Well, that happened too. <laughs> and I mean, you know, got called Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor a couple times. But, you know, regular, regular standard Asian American upbringing. <laughs> All right. Each and every week we start off the podcast with a roundtable segment where we talk about what's on our minds in Asian American and pop culture. Oh, yeah. So this week, let's start with Sean. What's on your mind this week? I don't know if y'all talked about it last week, and I know that one third of the table has not seen and or heard it yet, but I am still thinking about Lemonade. Oh, we did not talk about this. So for the listeners who were not aware, Beyonce dropped a visual album called Lemonade, which which was amazing, Um, and I've been listening to it over and over again. It's an amazing piece that sort of chronicles... Um, her struggle with infidelity and then also um, just like a firm, like it's a super awesome, like black girls magic kind of visual tribute to like a lot of conversations that are happening right now in the media. Um, I'm not going to comment too much on it because I really think that that commentary is left is best left to like black women who can, who it's was made for clearly. And it's, it's not, there's, I think we can all find something in it, but it, it's clearly meant for um, consumption and dissection by black women. And so I'm, I'm not going to talk too much about it. But I will say, though, if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Pay for it. <laughs> um, don't just like, you know, quote unquote, borrow it. Um, but that's kind of on my mind. Otherwise, I'm thinking about uh, what am I thinking about today? At the White House is um, the Champions of Change right. Our friends, ceremony uh, where folks are getting anointed <laughs> by the state yeah. <laughs> for their contributions to yeah. Asian Americanhood. Um, and so just quick shout out to Taz Ahmed, um, writer formerly of Sipi Mudani and currently of Mishti Music and a number of other projects like, Bang- like a Beach of Bangladesh and um, other stuff in and around the Asian American South Asian community. Um, and then big ups to Jenny Yang, who yeah, is like known for her work, amazing, amazing work with Disorienting Comedy. And yeah, the um, the ceremony was today, today meaning Tuesday, so two days ago when you guys are listening to this. There was I think a really today great is Wednesday. Shoot, it is. edit it out and post. Yeah, edit the ceremony was the ceremony was on Wednesday, and you can catch it on the White House YouTube channel right now if you want to check it out. It's a, there's a great panel moderated by Phil Yu, Angry Asian Man. And um, I caught the tail end, like the second half of it, and, and kind of want to go back and watch the rest of it because they said some really cool stuff. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I mean, I think you know we um, when we're talking about Asian Pacific, Asian American slash Pacific Islander <laughs> Heritage Month, um, you know, I think we we think a lot about who is at the table and who isn't. And I mean, it, it's cool seeing who they were able to bring out to Washington and and yeah. who they're they're choosing to represent, like you know, twenty million of us. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, there's always room to grow and always room to improve the way that we're talking about ourselves and figuring out, you know, um, and, and, you know, figure out who's getting represented and who is not. Um, but I, I do definitely want to commend everyone who, who was recognized cause they're all doing amazing work. Yeah. And the white house initiative for Asian American, I don't know the full name, we, but we happy. <laughs> they've been doing a really good job the past few years, like raising awareness and at least giving props to people who are doing great things in you know, in our, in our communities. And, you know, hopefully it continues on to the next administration. We'll see if, you know, if we'll, that... <laughs> we'll see, we'll see if, uh, president Trump really, uh, 
wants oh. to keep funding. Yeah, I'm editing that on the post. <laughs> I think we should keep a tally of how many times we can say edit it out and post. Edit on the post. But all of the times we say it will be edited out, so we'll only just... Only we will know. Only you will know. You'll have to add in in post the tally, but then just say only three made it into the final cut. We'll make it happen. It's a good idea. I'm excited. It's already stuck in my head. I'm going over... to use it till it's dead. But going back never to what you're saying about, about Lemonade, you're right, there's been a lot of commentary from all throughout just this past week. I think it's really cool that we have an artist because, you know, with the passing of you know, David Bowie, Prince, like we still have artists who are willing to do things just like because they can. And totally. I think that that's really awesome. Um, I want to ask you about your thoughts about the, because you mentioned that you, know, you don't want to give commentary because you don't feel like you have the... The total the, understanding yeah. of, yeah. There's been a lot of talk, in, in, especially regarding Lemonade, about like people preemptively saying everyone should shut up about it. Mm. I mean, I commentary. think it depends who's saying it and what the intent is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of where I've been seeing that said is from especially black women who've experienced silencing on the internet where people will, you know, talk about how like Taylor Swift is a feminist, but then Beyonce suddenly is not. Like there, there's a lot of really racialized commentary, I think, around um, Beyonce's work. And so I think coming off of her last album and then especially... Or which featured um, a lot of allusions to like a history of fem- historical feminism, of black feminism, people right. call- women of color feminism, um, and then especially coming most recently after formation, there's been a lot of like pushback from non-black folks who have said like I don't get it, like <laughs> I don't why isn't this made for me? And so I think a lot of it was a preemptive like, hey, like I know that y'all might be mad, but stop. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Audrey has also sort of been seeing a lot of this, so I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I think also it's really important to point out that non black people of color can and do uphold anti blackness. And I think that's a really big part of our community and understanding that we contribute to it. I mean, if you look at Akai Gurley, the case of Akai Gurley and how people showed up in support of Peter Liang, we obviously are complicit in systems that uphold anti blackness. And I think even as racialized people within the United States, we still have um, a position within white supremacy, and that's really important to keep in mind. So I have seen a lot of Asian Americans saying things like, well, we don't have that person in our community. Why can't we have this? And I think that actually is part of anti-blackness. Is like We can ask for visibility, but do it in a way that doesn't latch on to other people's successes or point that out. Um, I think that came out or too. Or downplay. downplay. Yeah, or downplay. Yeah. Like yeah. There's a huge difference between the ways we experience marginalization. And I think the same thing happened around um, the Oscars and some of the jokes that Chris Rock told and then people saying like anti-blackness and anti-Asian racism are the same without understanding like the context of the violence of anti-blackness. And so I also, like I've been watching Lemonade since it dropped. Uh, Sean, <laughs> let me use his title login for the first time. And Whoa. then I ended up, I ended, and then I and ended then up also signing up, up yeah. for title, but I'm to be honest on my free trial and probably after 30 days, we'll just be like, okay, I can't watch this. Twice I, feel like a that's, week. I feel like that's the path I'm going to take. Cause I, I know Jay-Z needs his taste, but I kind of, I feel like it's the type of thing like, I want to see it because I feel like it's a cultural zeitgeist that I kind of want to uh, like see. Long time listeners of the podcast know I'm not really big on the pop side of music, but I do appreciate a good tune and some cool video. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. It's just a larger piece, I think. I think the music is amazing, and then seeing Warsenshire's poetry yeah. and how yeah. that interplays with the visual. Like, I I think a lot of the music is fantastic. The visuals are great, but then just seeing it as 
a cultural touch point and then as a love letter to black women. And then also just uplifting that Amanda Stenberg is featured in it. And they just came out as non-binary and they also were saying like, but I'm not your martyr because Tumblr fans edited their Wikipedia page to use she, uh, from she, her, her, hers pronouns to use they, them, theirs. And Amanda asked for it to be changed back because they were saying, you know, this can affect my professional opportunities. And so I think there's also this pushback of so many of the young black women and Amanda who are featured in that video have experienced criticism starting from like being age eight and it being publicly visible as black women. Um, and I think that's part of anti-blackness. And I think having them all featured in this video is kind of like a pushback and like middle fingers to like everything that tells black women mm-hmm. in this country that they're not valuable. Um, even within like our conversations about anti-blackness, like say her name coming out and then also like the violence that black trans women face is also erased within how we talk about resistance to anti-blackness. And again, just want to echo what Sean was saying that like, this is a conversation where we can uplift the voices of people who are marginalized talking about it, but Mm -hmm. really stand back and allow them to speak for themselves. Yeah. I think, and that's where it goes back to, um, as Asian American artists, like it it can be a point of study. Obviously I don't want to see an Asian American version of formation. I've said that like three or four times. Um, I don't want to hear like, you know, let's just take, things and like switch up the race and then that's called a day. But I think that watching it, um, it can be a challenge to see like, all right. So in the way that like Asian Americans have always sort of benefited from, um, a lot of stuff, like I've, I've always benefited from a lot of, um, coalition building and, um, work. And in some cases like actually stolen and lifted, from black communities, how can we take this as an opportunity to take a step back and, and observe um, without completely lifting or like trying or like marginalizing or raising voices while at the same time, like challenging ourselves to produce work that is more nuanced. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an important thing that is kind of hard to do in these days when, with things like Twitter and social media where it's all about hot takes. It's all about what's your hot take on this. And so you're encouraged to make observations or statements without really thinking about it, really kind of considering every, all the context. Yeah. Right. So context is important and yeah, just, yeah. And considering whether you need to say anything, like, <laughs> I think that's a big part of it too. Is like, you know, we can, I mean, to be real, like the minute, the minute I finished watching it, I was just all up on Twitter, just like <laughs> vomiting words, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's cool because I think it's, it's a new, we're coming into a new era in a way where we're able to talk about race in a much more nuanced, um, with a much more nuanced vocabulary and a much more nuanced understanding of all of our positions against each other. And, and so I, I, I hope that we can be better. I hope we can just be better and we can like, you know, I just, cause I, I, I feel like Asian Americans, like we're, some of us are really, really awesome about how we approach race and discussions about Asian America and some of us just like kind of say it to say it. And so I hope that this can be a bit of a challenge to us to figure out not what our lemonade is, but how we're going to tell our stories. Like optimistically speaking, I feel like the collective ability to express what we think is, has been growing. Totally. So what's on your mind, Andre? Um, I don't really engage in pop culture that much, but, uh, I can talk to you about bread. I love bread. Bread's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so I bake bread from a sourdough starter that actually is shared with other community organizers that I met through Tuesday Night Cafe. 
Um, I would say the bread is probably the most important piece of Tuesday Night Project. <laughs> it's a pretty big part. Um, but okay, I got what? it from Narinda Hang, who used to stage manage before I stage managed. Um, and so I like that it's a sourdough starter that's shared in community and started bread baking about two years ago. Okay. So let's um, turn this into the How Stuff Works podcast real quick. And what does a sourdough starter do for people who don't know? So a sourdough starter is... Marvin asks for a friend. For a friend. Is a, um, <laughs> similar Darvin. to how kombucha works. Um, that's often not helpful for people because people that's don't also not, know how kombucha really, works. I get it, but I don't I know what kombucha really. is, but I also don't know how that's made. Mother, it's, there's it's like fermented. a mother, there's a mother. Thing. So yeah, the fermenty thing is called a scoby. And basically it just keeps reproducing forever. And then you're like eating its children. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So a sourdough starter too, like if you put it, if you basically feed it flour and water and as it eats the sugars off of the flour particles, it's producing carbon dioxide and it's also all like being converted into starter. That's how beer's made too, right? Like beer. Yeah. yeah. So the, pers- the process of fermentation is just like converting things to other things. And in the case of bread, the sourdough starter is producing carbon dioxide. So when you like slice into a loaf of bread and you look at the structure where there's all those holes and air pockets, that's called the crumb. And those air pockets are actually carbon dioxide bubbles that are trapped in gluten. So gluten is formed from the so protein. My, eye, my eyes are kind of glazing over a little flour. bit. No, this, like, is, this is fascinating. No, keep, keep going. It's, I feel like if I gave you bread that I made, you'd be like, okay, fine. I'll listen to you talk about it for five minutes because you'd be eating the bread and you'd be fine. But mm. it would just pick up a lot of ambient noise. All right. So stuff happens. Bread is made. How did you get into bread? Um, about two and a half years ago, I started making jam because jam is del- I had a lot of. I think I had excess fruit and was like, I'll just make jam. No, it was for someone's, it was for like a holiday present for someone. I was like, I'll just make them jam instead of buying it. I really want to ask how jam is made, but I don't want to Let's not You smash fruit and add um, citric acid and or pectin and sugar and then let it congeal. And there's some other steps to make sure you don't like get botulism, but started making jam and then I was like (laughs) going to move to Portland. So I was like, I'm going to make my own jam and my own bread and then I'll bike around Portland being a jam and bread maker it's a good way to make friends i feel like i yeah. feel like that's a really good have way to some make bread friends. and jam yeah yeah i feel like if i did that though people probably wouldn't trust not in la but maybe port- maybe like a smaller town or you know i mean a farm somewhere in portland it's fine like once yeah. i brought a loaf of bread to a coffee shop to give to a queer asian american woman who owns either or you should go there if you're in portland um and like gave her a loaf of bread she gave me free coffee and then people drove by with these baby goats they just had. Like, they were like three-week-old baby goats. I so then, Portland. Check it out. So then I was like, baby goats, free bread, free coffee. Like, this is Portlandia, except less racist. Everyone needs goats and llamas and free coffee. and I mean, this all sounds like an all-in-a-day's work, right? I don't know. I've, I haven't lived outside of LA in a long time. Is this just what happens outside of Los Angeles? Yes. <laughs> Sure. All right. I speak with authority because I was in Portland for a year. Yes. It's just goats, bread, coffee, and racism. White mm. supremacy. Okay. Mm. Okay. That's a good combination. I don't know if I'm going to go to Portland. <laughs> so that's cool. Like you're right around Portland, giving out bread, making friends. And so you're keeping that alive while, when you're back in LA? Yes. Uh, I do a lot of bread baking for community now and um, like bringing it to events, fundraising for TNC. Or just like doing court support rallies. It's mm-hmm. nice to have carbs. Yeah. You should make your own butter too. I feel like that's, then you'll be like jam, butter, and bread. It's the 
the I, the tr- tr- Trinity. The Trinity. I the, feel like I'd have to like milk my own cows. For one to make their own butter, do they need to like do the churny thing where they have like a cone thing on the ground and then they're like an old timey? There's probably some sort of robot churner now or some mm, machine. I yes. feel like um, I have an answer. <laughs> oh, you can actually just put, I think, cream into a like a mason jar and shake it enough, and then you just like pull off some of the more liquidy stuff and then keep shaking as the solids get shaken. The fat globules will congeal. And then eventually, that's butter. You know, that's science. So, like in our in our post-apocalyptic like dystopian future, where we're all you know in small farming communes, we're gonna hang out with Audrey. Yeah, I'm gonna hang out with Audrey. Yeah. I feel like that's the best course of action when the zombie yeah. apocalypse hits. I have a I, friend who has a has a ton of guns, so I'm gonna stick with him until the zombies <laughs> are done. And then when we rebuild society, hopefully Audrey hasn't been killed yet, and we can work off of their expertise in making food. I actually also took the community emergency response training course that the fire department offers just for apocalypse training, but it I don't I think I expected more survival skills and more first aid and got a lot more like don't drink your fire extinguisher water, which I knew not to mm. do. <laughs> um or like don't turn off your gas, don't use your gas line to just cook with. Like mm. a lot of things where I'm like, oh hmm kind of a sad commentary that you have to teach this to people how would one drink their fire extinguisher water like would you unscrew how would that work like what do you unscrew in that situation because isn't it foam there's four different kinds of fire extinguishers. i'm just gonna actually everything y'all speculate on and say i know the response <laughs> it, it there's a water-based one but it has chemicals in it to prevent high um prevent ev- evaporation got it but you yeah. still shouldn't drink it because there's chemicals in it uh, you should don't just not, drink don't, fire extinguishers <laughs> don't drink any just this, if it's red if there's anything that you're going to take away from collabcast episode 66 it's not to drink your fire extinguisher and that's not just for asian america i would say that's applicable to everyone if you're listening out there do not drink the fire extinguisher water or your swimming pool water also a question that came up as asian americans I do believe that we should not be drinking our pools or our fire extinguishers. I feel like that is something our community should be more aware of. Someone should make a PSA. In this month of months, Asian (laughs) American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, not drinking your pool or extinguisher water. To bring it back to heritage, would you drink water out of like an onsen? Uh, I don't know. Do they put, I mean, monkeys bathe in those. Like your personal one. Um, I think that that's just like tab water. Where's the line between where it becomes like a pool? Chlorine. But not size. I think it's chlorine. Because I would drink out of like a lake. Would you drink recycled bath water in the apocalypse? Uh, ooh. Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> Speaking of dystopian <laughs> futures, uh, I want to talk a little bit about... I didn't follow it, but a conversation came up on that podcast that I was listening earlier, and the Met Gala apparently just happened. And this year, instead of going super racist with Asian stuff, they decided to talk about the future. Last year was fun when Rihanna <laughs> was an omelet. Yeah. That was good. Did you hear about that? I need to engage more in pop culture. I'm like, what are you talking so about? So last year's Met Gala was like a night in China. That wasn't what it was called, but it was like... I heard about that part. I didn't hear yeah. about the omelet. It was like actually... like all, It was like cre- created by Ai Weiwei. So it was... Like, actual Asian people were involved. Well, the, the exhibit was, and so the theme of the night was something about China. Chinese yeah. stuff. Asian Chin- stuff, right? Chinese so, 
Chinese dreams. Everyone decided to come in their best Chinese fantasies. You know, kimono or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then Rihanna came in a dress that was like handmade by a Chinese fashion designer, yeah. but also looked like that Sanrio character, um, the one that's an egg that's like really tired. Mm. Oh, the um, the Guritama. Yeah, is that yeah. Sanrio? Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't. Yep, know that. their newest, their newest one. I haven't. I haven't that character is really dark for Sanrio. Yep. No, that's. It's all about the butt in that one. There's also a salmon fillet character. Anyways, this year the Met Gala theme was Marvin's given up. The he's future. Just, he's just edit us out in post. <laughs> and so everyone came in their best. I don't know, futuristic fashions Zane, or whatever. Zane came so, in robotic arms. Yeah, that was actually pretty pretty cool, <laughs> but. Like his arms were turned into robot arms or robot yeah, arms were gently like, embracing him. Imagine like a knight's armor, but only the arms and futuristic yeah. and Zane. So there's a lot of shiny stuff, a I lot of LED that. lights. And it got me thinking about how like science fiction, futuristic stuff. It's always been people thinking, like extrapolating what the future would look like based on today or where we're headed. Right. And how is it we're still headed towards leather and shiny lights and chrome when, I don't know, everything seems to be like, I feel like there should be a more updated version of the future. Totally. Like yeah. say the her dystopian future or whatever, where people still dress normal, but it's more about the technology they wear and use. And I taking like the subway to Santa Monica. High speed rail to wherever that's going to gonna be a future. Yeah. That's the future I want. Someday I'll, I will go to the West side <laughs> and it will be when the her future comes to reality maybe Um, it's that there's actually a tipping point where the dystopia sets in and you're like i can't anymore i just need to be shiny i'm gonna die in a horrible fire extinguisher swimming pool drinking death i hope that part doesn't get out in poster this has no context (laughs) i'm gonna die by drinking swimming pool water so i might as well be really shiny i i feel like some days i wake up and i'm just like you know what Today seems like it's going to be a hard day. I'm going to wear wear shiny robot arms and not the rest of the I mean, armor. that could be functional. You might need extra robot arms that you might. help. Um, I feel like I'd go for like a matte, like a matte black or charcoal, mm. not like a metal. That just seems like it would get really hot. But why though? Because so Emma Watson came in a Calvin, I think it was a Calvin Klein dress that was made out of smart yarn, which is... Um, fabric made out of recycled recycled plastic, and yeah. to me, that that's kind of can get behind that future, I guess. So, Marvin, I guess, I guess, really, the question on everyone's mind is, what would Marvin wear to the Met Gala circa last night? Mad Max stuff, probably. I don't know. So, so you would wear just <laughs> okay, just same but less shiny. Yes, yeah, same but or less dirty because the future's gonna be dirty. I think it doesn't have to be. <laughs> get solar panels, y'all. Yeah, so I think the question is, one, what do you wear in the real dystopia? Yeah. Two, what do you wear for a dystopia-themed party? Yeah. It's your turn, Sean. What w- so if it, were, if it were a dystopian, if it were a real dystopia, I think I would probably wear a t-shirt that's fashionably long, but, but, but practical enough that it keeps me like warm. And then I would wear like some sort of jacket well, that's okay. wool. Maybe not even dystopia, because let's... Well, I mean, we're headed towards some form of dystopia, but we don't know which one yet. But let's say thinking towards the future yeah. based on what you know about you know, where we're headed right now. What do you think clothes would be, would be in the future? I, I think that's the, what I, I'm more interested in is you know, 
not your idea of like how what I'm going to wear to survive the zombie apocalypse, but what do people look like in the future that's not based in what Blade Runner showed us back in like the 80s? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it I guess it goes back to like a how hot the planet's going to get because that's going to be big. B how underwater we are because if we're aquatic, then that'll change things. Right, and then after that whether the 90s ever come back in because they're in now but i like i feel like we're hitting 1994 and i don't Sean's know if going we're to gonna go beyond that. I, <laughs> or like a surfer bodysuit that's or, probably or that seal. sean will be a dolphin in the future i'll be a dolphin i'll be still, a street shark but still curating tuesday night project yes. and tuesday night cafe it's further <laughs> it's far enough in, inland i don't think it's gonna be swallowed up by the pacific ocean not yet yeah did you see katie perry at Orlando bloom came with matching tamagotchis i i heard I heard. Well, because there's yeah, a that's Tama- a future I can get behind. Virtual pets. There's a Tamagotchi app. Now, also, I didn't realize all this year, all these years. It's Tamagotchi. Like it didn't okay. occur to me that it's a Japanese word until like okay. two years ago. It's Tamagotchi, and you'll like it. To diaspora and identity, and this month, Tamagotchi, Tamagotchi. Did you guys have Tamagotchis? I did. No, I had a I had a bootleg one, and then I lost it when I was. Waiting for my mom at Macy's. I had a knockoff one, and then I was like, "Why?" Were they all doomed to die in poop? Mine's, mine's were. Uh, mine did not. I just lost it before that could happen. Oh. I think I lost interest. It probably died in poop because of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I read a lot of books, and now I bake bread. What is pop culture? <laughs> I lived with a TV writer for like four years and she would say things and I just stared at her blankly. But then once in a while, like the one thing I had seen, I'd make a reference to it. And she's like, what are you wa- like? Why have you only consumed the most random pieces of media? And I don't know. I do not have an answer. I mean, that's good. Cause you can bring in a different perspective. Yeah. I feel let's bring it full circle. Then Aubrey in the future, what do you picture fashion to be like? Um, that's not, not apocalyptic or dystopian, but just the future. What, what, what can, do you, can, you, can you give us a year? Yeah, a year would be helpful. 20, 2050? 2050. Okay, so, so King Trump will have ended his reign. Yeah. Stop. Um, <laughs> He'll be so Emperor Trump by then. There was actually... I'm always going to bring it back to Karinas. There was a study recently that of like people who are in high school. I think only like 30 or 40% of them identify as fully hetero and like fully cisgender whatever fully cisgender means, but I think there's a lot more of like breaking down binaries in clothing. So I'm hoping that that continues to happen and people stop gendering clothes. Um, See an aspirational future. Yeah. But I also think it will be very, very hot. Like I don't, I don't like that to me feels dystopian because I don't like being very, very hot except Mm. that I am. Uh, (laughs) I think that I will post. Oh, my feelings. (laughs) You can edit that out and post too. Um, So I think it will be, temperature wise hot and then people will be hot because they'll wear clothes that affirm like their identity um so breathable fabrics i think uv protection will be important and then probably there will be some i'm going to dystopia sorry probably there will be some kind of (laughs) pests and like insects that we're not prepared for yet because temperature shifts so i would say sean will die because you're wearing a t-shirt like you need to cover as much skin as possible I just you know it's it hot. helps for chemical burns it's warm you really should take this it's class. Warm. <laughs> i just found out all the different ways you can die which is a really good way to go through life but yeah i think more colors because everything else will be bleak so we might as well right uh less gendered things so all you entrepreneurs out there breathable fabrics 
anti-bug stuff and less gendered. Less gendered. Yeah. That's but I think there's fabrics where you can like microbial things are woven into the fabric. <laughs> like anti I'm trying, there's like antibacterial. I'm trying to understand that sentence right now. <laughs> so like I read an article living, about spelunking. Li- living, living things in your in your clothes to protect There's like appearance. antimicrobial things so you can like wear underwear longer for if you're spelunking or if you just don't want to change your underwear so you're not having your flesh beaten. It's a special fabric. I don't know. It's a it's a microbe eating fabric. Is that Am I understanding that? It's it's like fabric that eats germs protect your junk i think that's that's keeps what it's you about right? away, Keep, keeps bacteria away like bacteria can't live in it as yeah. much in case you're spelunking for a week in case you're spelunking if you turn into a dolphin that roller skates comes. well i mean you never know modesty may be important in 2015 yeah i feel like these are the conversations that, that met gala could have started but then everyone just thinks matrix they really could have the only know. thing i i read about it was that a lot of dudes just showed up in suits yeah, and the Matrix. Well, yeah, because masculinity is fragile. Up, yeah, except but for that yeah. dude with the robot arms. Zane. Props. Zane. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk about gentrification. I guess. Yeah, the fun stuff. <laughs> we'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Marvin. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Collabcast, episode 66. Uh, we're going to go through some quick updates right now. But as always, this podcast is brought to you by Collaboration, a nonprofit organization supporting Asian Americans in the arts and entertainment. Discovering, elevating, showcasing, and connecting the creative talents of our community. We're in the midst of APA Heritage Month, which means there's a lot of events coming up that collaborations all around the nation are supporting. So please check out your local collaboration team's Facebook page or social media to see what events are coming up. Or just type in hashtag APAHM to see what's going on. If you're in the Chicago area, Collaboration Chicago is having a Return of the Stars event on May 14th at the Dave & Buster Showroom on Clark Street. They'll be inviting back past performers to perform once again at their show. So um, for more information, check out their website, collaborationchicago.org, or their Facebook page. We also have a lot of great content going up on collaboration.org, including a new green room released this week with AC Lorenzo, formerly of the pop music group Kai. Also, a new Coffee Break interview with Jay Jin, where he talks about giving up his stable career path to go pursue his creative dreams. We also have a couple great articles that went up, including a write-up on Chef Roy Choi's newest restaurant endeavor, Local, where he talks about bringing good, affordable food to traditional food deserts, as well as his views on gentrification. We've also been releasing a series of audio interviews with the filmmakers of the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. So if you want to learn more about the new Asian American films coming out, the filmmakers and their advice to the next generation of filmmakers, uh, check them out on collaboration.org. You can also find past episodes of the Collabcast on collaboration.org, so um, check us out. As always, we're still recruiting for new staff members. So if you're interested in volunteering with one of our local cities, or if you'd like to write for the Collaboration blog and help us create content, uh, check out the applications at collaboration.org. They're in the Get Involved section. And finally, don't forget, you can always send an email to the podcast at podcast at collaboration.org. You can send in questions or even topic suggestions for the podcast. And we always like to hear what you guys have to say. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please give us a quick rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, the reviews and ratings do help us be able to reach more people, and we appreciate your support. And that's all for our collaboration update break. Uh, thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. 
And we're back. <laughs> that Wait. was a really restful break. <laughs> we talked about so much that you won't hear about. You'll I'm never sorry. hear about it. Sorry. Sean was singing Prince songs. The They're good. Time. Rest in peace, Prince. You, <laughs> you did good. We didn't talk about him. We should have talked about him. I feel like I don't know enough about Prince to talk about. I feel like he's one of those, he's one of those artists who I kind of grew up hearing, mm-hmm. but never really putting a face or a name to until I became of age. Right. And once once I hit that, and it became more clear who who this this person singing to me through the radio was, then it all kind of came together. But yeah, yeah, good work. There's a lot of really good retrospectives and commentary on the internet, so uh, you should go check it out. I've heard about that place. <laughs> the, but, internet. the internet, yeah, the internet. it's a good place. It's where the pop culture is. <laughs> but we're here um, to talk about a topic now that since you know. Since I'm learning things now, we can talk about urban planning stuff that I'm kind of more interested in. Yeah. Um, so something get that's a little, been get a little wild on a lot of, you know, we, we just released a article on collab.org where we interviewed um, Chef Roy Choi about his new um, restaurant local um, on Watts and his plans for that. Um, Sean's been posting stuff about, you know, Little Tokyo and the influx of trains. <laughs> There's just so many trains. Yeah. So many trains. And All coming into Little Tokyo. Just, it's like Japan. <laughs> taking our taking our food. Except the trains are slow and yes. don't serve food. Yeah. <laughs> just got me thinking about, um, especially with the Asian American communities in America. Now that you know, now that apparently it's trendy or things are trendier, Asian food is trendier. Um, you know, the influx of people who want to live in those places and how that's affecting our communities. That was a very convoluted way of saying gentrification is happening it's happening all around it's coming so yeah i brought you guys here to to chat yeah 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 so la's been going through a lot of changes in the last couple of years you know they're trying to make things more dense i'm trying to bring more people in and the whole thing is you know there's a whole i guess theory about you know creative class right if you want to have an innovative economy you need to bring in people who are engineers who are finance people who have you know, the training, the know-how to, to bring money in, right? And they want to live in places that have arts, that have quirk, that have, totally. you know, um, that they can, I guess, what's the right word? Artsy, creative places yeah. that make them feel grungier than yeah. they are. And so yeah. you get this um, effect where a lot of money comes in and everyone else, everyone who made the place desirable gets priced out, yep. right? Did I explain that? Okay. That's not about right. I th- I think that there's it's it's there are actually a lot of different ways that people slice and dice gentrification. I've heard it explained to me like six or seven different ways. But I mean, I think the overarching thing, and Audrey totally jump in on this. I think the overarching thing is when a community exists in an area, um, and then typic- they're typically like low income families or low like business smaller businesses um oftentimes there are communities that have a lot of history in that area oftentimes there are, there are communities of color um as folks try to find places to live around the city um the price of that area and then the culture of that area becomes super attractive and so people start moving in businesses start coming in that then attract even more people um oftentimes those businesses are um trying to attract a more um Affluent, affluent clientele. Yeah. Oftentimes, the buildings being built in there are, are being built for folks who don't live in that area, and are like the the housing is right. more for people again who are drawn to um, 
the community and the culture of that area. Um, and so as it happens and buildings get bought out slowly, people and then landowners see that this area is becoming more and more popular. Um, slowly, people who live there get displaced, businesses get displaced, um, and we see that area become um, gentrified. It, it becomes unaffordable um, for the communities that lived there prior. Um, the people who, the very people who made that neighborhood desire in the first place, get removed, um, right. and it gets quote unquote cleaned up. Um, and there's quote unquote attention being paid to it when in reality there already was people there were people there and there already was attention paid for it just not by the mainstream and a lot of times you know they're they're able to develop that because developers promise oh we're going to keep this amount of units for low-income housing to you know make sure that doesn't happen but then a lot of that is mostly it feels like lip service because it doesn't address the entire issue because there are still people being pushed out the business is closing and a lot of stuff, and especially in you know communities where actually the Asian American community in Los Angeles, we've set up and yeah, you know yeah. Um, I mean, I yeah. think that there there are communities that have been traditionally um, <laughs> so Little Tokyo, for it, example. Yeah. Let's just let's just use Little Tokyo as an example. Um, pre-war, folks um, of Japanese descent or Japanese citizens rather who had immigrated to America to you know coal the mine that ran America and build you know the railways and. Um, farm who were, were drawn over by um, American um, business people. Uh, they were not allowed to own and oftentimes rent land um, anywhere in LA except for Little Tokyo. So that's where you saw this influx of people in Little Tokyo and Little Tokyo growing as a community. Same thing happened in with the Chinese community that then had their community totally raised to the ground and then in, in in so that Union Station could be built, but um, for Little Tokyo, um, that area um, was pretty much dead actually in like the nineties. Um, there was like not a lot happening there. Yeah, I remember I used to go there as a kid, and the only thing there worth really checking out was like the Yahan Plaza. Yeah, with the giant Godzilla that scared the crap out of me. Yeah, and like yeah. people, and, and like there was not a lot of. Um, there was a really, really high crime rate. There was not a lot of attention being paid to that area. Um, residents were taking it on themselves to basically um, take care of the area because the city wasn't putting money into it. Um, but what we saw, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky, is like in order to sort of reinvigorate the downtown Los Angeles area, um, in 1981, um, the Artist of Residence Ordinance was passed, which basically allowed a lot of abandoned lofts in the Arts District to become um, housing units for artists. And so a lot of artists did take a residence in that area, which is why the Arts District is there have been so many artists who have traditionally lived there. Meanwhile, downtown um, in 1998, I believe, or 1999, the Adaptive Reuse Ordinance was passed, which basically um, provided benefits for business owners to come in and um, re and convert like old buildings, especially like bank buildings, into right. businesses, which we see, which obviously we see yeah. now as like clubs and lounges and restaurants and all that. And so those two things together kind of created this perfect storm of businesses being developed um, and then attention being paid to these two areas, which, I mean, I think were with the best intentions on the part of the city, mm-hmm. but that just led to, you know, in the arts district, just a formation of an amazing creative class of doing amazing work and then yeah. eventually attention and then, Coupled that with uh, coupling that with them two decades later, when we see 
um, downtown being totally transformed right. and housing prices go up there, that just like basically puts yeah. all eyes on Little Tokyo Arts District. <laughs> and so what that's meant is like it's rent is like $2,000 now. Small businesses are being pushed out. Um, whereas where, while there was this like beautiful, you know, um, honeymoon period sort of around like 2008, 2009, where a lot of stuff was happening, but people could still afford to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're definitely at a point where businesses are shutting down, businesses are having to move, historical places are seeing their rent double. Like the oldest business in Little Tokyo, forget though I last heard like their rent is like doubling. Um, so it's it's becoming a huge issue. I would also say, you know, bordered by those three areas, the Arts District, Downtown Gentrifying, and Little Tokyo is Skid Row. Skid Row mm-hmm. is caught between, like the small neighborhood that is Skid Row is caught between all of those. Like the SROs, which are single residence occupancies because they used to be hotels along where people were doing shipping work and like coming through Union Station. Like that is also getting squeezed. Like we've heard, I worked on Skid Row for four years and we were hearing of people who were houseless and in the Arts District just disappearing. Like I think another piece of gentrification that sometimes isn't as much talked about is how police presence is used to push people out. And it can be intimidation, it can be arrests, it can be physical violence. You see that with like Mario Wood's case in San Francisco or Alex Nieto in, I believe, Oakland. Um, And the same is happening in Skirdo. It's been happening since the 90s. And the LA Times just reported on the the newest homeless count today. There's been a three-year rise in homelessness. It's at an all-time high again. And as homelessness rises because of the lack of affordable housing in this city, there's also just a shrinking of Skid Row. There's all this pressure from the the bids the um, to clean up what they see as crime. Mm-hmm. Um, while there's also like the city, re- the city and county both recently passed budgets that in- include a higher budget to address homelessness. But the gentrification affects how those services are going to be implemented, where they're going to be implemented, and as housing prices go up, we're going to see an increased rise in homelessness. So I think. That's another neighborhood that's just right next to Little Tokyo. And as Little Tokyo gets gentrified, which is displacing residents there, some of those elders are, may also become homeless. Yeah. And it's becoming more and more of an issue. Like, I think that it's not like I think a lot of people see homelessness as not an Asian American issue. Mm-hmm. But like there's definitely like a especially in Koreatown and in like around Little Tokyo and even in Hollywood, like I, I there's a visible Asian homeless Asian American population in those areas. So Yeah. And it's also um yeah. the AARP and Asian Americans Advancing Justice LA just put out a report looking at Asian Americans who are fifty and older and when they sliced down the data, actually Korean Americans were among the highest of those who are renting or those who are living alone. And some of those are indicators of being most at risk for becoming displaced or homeless. Um and also really high rates of being uninsured. Some of this information came out before ACA, so it might shift a little, but just recognizing that even within our communities, you don't typically think of Korean Americans as necessarily facing those same impacts, or at least I didn't. I don't want to speak for everyone, but it's happening in Koreatown as well. Um, And just across different neighborhoods, our elders are also being squeezed, and the lack of affordable housing, when you're talking about displacement, it can also mean older folks, like our parents' generations. Yeah. And, I mean, we're seeing the same thing happening in K-Town as well, which is um, part of the collective that, that you work with. Right. Um, where developments are growing up where you, you just know it's going to be super expensive housing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that from a cultural perspective, I guess, how K-Town's kind of made a, a turn yeah, from a place uh, yeah. where you couldn't go without a Korean friend to mm-hmm. now, you know. Who it caters to. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think like from a business standpoint, Korean American folks have been very, very smart in um, 
keeping the area business-wise very, very Korean-American and how there's a lot of businesses that are owned and run by, by Korean-Americans um, that cater to like an Asian-American, Korean-American crowd because I think a lot of Asian-Americans like see K-Town as sort of like the place to go out now. Um, but with that said, I know on the, on the, um, the resident side, and that's what Audrey can speak to much better than I can, I think that it's, it's completely different. Right. And also Koreatown is one of the densest and most uh, most ethnically diverse neighborhoods, not just in our city, but nationwide. So there's like little Bangladeshis in there. Um, there's a huge Salvadoran and Oaxacan population. And all of these people are also going to be displaced. Like Catalina, um, Protect K-Town started in opposition to the Catalina Project, which is on 8th and Catalina, because that development is going to bring in 270 luxury apartments on a block where every other building is like three stories high and the rents are going to be at least 2000 just looking at the other buildings that have popped up around Koreatown so far it's going to displace families that go to the RFK schools which means those students may have to drop out in the middle of the year or switch schools which then will further affect the funding of the of the school complex overall because of per people funding um, it's just completely out of touch with the rest of the neighborhood it's not close enough to transit to actually be considered transit oriented development mm-hmm. and on top of that the type of people who move into $2000 apartments are people who drive it's going to create congestion and traffic but the biggest issue is that it's going to drive up rents in our neighborhood and push out families push out small business owners and i think a lot of when we talk about Koreatown keeping in mind that it's not just Korean Americans. There's so many different immigrant families, working class families who make up the bulk of that neighborhood who are already feeling the squeeze of rising rents. Um, So our collective started as a way to specifically try to see what we could do around community benefits for this project. Um, It's been approved by city council over the objections of the planning committee, but it's kind of halfway in process. I know there's a lawsuit that's probably going to happen that may stop the development. But mm-hmm. we're recognizing that this is not the only development. What else can we do just to get information out? One of the biggest barriers we had when we were canvassing and going door knocking is people knew that project was coming, but they didn't. You only get 48 hours um, notice for any of the cities because of the Brown Act. Everything needs to be translated, but it only happens 48 hours before. It doesn't give people enough time to really respond. So what we're thinking about doing is organizing with other community organizations to get more of the planning and land use management materials translated so that people proactively have access to information. Right. I mean, a lot of it, most of it is about money, probably. But just in terms of we have this, um, this I guess, philosophy uh, in business school, which is planning for long term operating profits, meaning that you don't just look at your next quarter or your next year's fiscal years, you know, maximizing those profits. You maximize across perpetuity, right? And it really feels like not enough people really take that into account because you're incentivized oh, to, totally, yeah. you know, you're, you're incentivized to make the, as much money as you can now yeah. or else you're not doing your job. And that causes all these short-sighted things yeah. that happen. You know, the, the, the mortgage crisis of 2008, you know, was definitely that on all sides. And especially when it comes to urban planning and these deals are made way back like they take years to get to a point where they actually start building stuff and then from then on it takes time to see the effects but like with these projects the effects are not like it's not in a vacuum right mm-hmm. like it's we've seen it yeah. happen in other places you know san francisco is probably totally. the, the biggest example yeah. of it you know and there's there's a big movement in the entrepreneurship communities where you know they want to like every single entrepreneurship, like startup community around the nation wants to be like Silicon Valley in terms of prominence and innovation, but not in terms of what it did to that city. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that city is totally messed up, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah. Thank you, Merrily. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's really, and I mean, it's one of those things where I feel like back in college when we were organizing around Little Tokyo because so much we were so concerned about it just like fading away. Um, I would be in meetings where people were just straight up like, well, why are, like it's business period full stop. Yeah. But when you come into a neighborhood that is super, again, like a little Tokyo an arts district, what's when it just all becomes extremely affluent or extremely expensive market rate, lo- market rate lofts mm-hmm. and the artists can't live there and there's no infrastructure to support art. Why would people move in? Yeah. It's just another nice place. And we're seeing that up and down the arts district because it's not just, you know, the area adjacent to Little Tokyo. It's all the way down Alameda. Um, there's there's like going to be a mall there, you know? There's going to be a mall in Santi Alley, I think. Um, and so there's it, it, it's kind of like one of those things where we have an opportunity right now to get in there and sort of speak up. Um, it's daunting. <laughs> not going to lie about that. But, you know... I want my kids to be able to get hammered at Wolf and Crane. <laughs> yeah. When Wolf, Wolf and Crane older. is also like a new business that's come in. It yeah. is a new business, but they're, what I like about Wolf and Crane and Cafe Dulce is they actively engage right. the communities. Yeah. And I think it's, and it's yeah. not just like, is this the kind of neighborhood you want to go to? Like it's families getting displaced, totally. like elders getting displaced and like history being written over. And I think you see that over and over again, even in Los Angeles, like we can say like we haven't hit San Francisco levels, but like the city is like a palimpsest of people being displaced and people, people having their houses built over. Like you see that with internment displacement in little Tokyo with Chinatown being replaced by union station. Dodgers stadium was built over a neighborhood too. People have already been displaced. And I think beyond just being like, we want to preserve now, like, really, really fighting for the folks who are going to be impacted as soon as that project goes up. Yeah. As, even when we started organizing around the Catalina project, like there have already been families who are living in buildings on that site and rent-controlled units who have been pushed out that we don't know how to contact, and we don't know if they ever got relocation dollars that they're entitled to because of how they probably got pushed out. It might have been shady. They might not have had access to resources. And so recognizing that when one building goes up, all of the neighbors may not have legal recourse because they're like, oh, my rent went up, but it wasn't tied to this. It was tied to, it was a ripple effect of this one project. They may not have somewhere to go and they're just getting pushed further and further out. Um, SAGE, S-A-G-E, has a really great report that's coming out around the reef and they did a lot of impacts on the health impacts and then also what I think they call root trauma of people who are displaced multiple times. And honestly, the impact is bigger on black and brown communities. Like it also affects our people. But I think if we're being realistic about what it looks like in LA and probably nationwide, the impact is on black communities. It's on Latino communities, but it's also on like undocumented immigrants, which is a huge part of Asian American and Pacific Islander populations more and more. And so I think recognizing that it's not just about like, what does a neighborhood look like later? It's like, what is happening to the people who are there now? Like, are we documenting their history and stories? Are we making sure they have somewhere to go? How are we providing like mental health counseling for the fact that their historical home was taken away and like now it's a train station. Now it's a luxury apartment. So, I mean, so we've seen the ways that gentrification doesn't work, but at the same time, you know, investing into communities that or it works too well. <laughs> we've seen the downside. Yeah. I mean, the downside of it's, it's gathered a very negative connotation when it comes to, you know, all the things that we talked about. Um, but there is something to be said about investing money into communities that need it. And there is probably, as all things, a better way to go about, you know, revitalizing communities and making it so that you support what made that community great to begin with, while also making it more 
safe is a very like kind of maybe not, maybe it's more just like how do you invest in a community to make sure that it's sustainable while ensuring that it is a neighborhood that the residents who live there feel um like they can thrive in like they can thrive in yeah i mean i think it also requires us to redefine how we consider safety um i think safety is a very coded term which you right. you like just even saying that sentence like you recognize that and i think it, it involves getting to know your community. Yeah. And when you face displacement and when you face rising rents, I think it creates scarcity and encourages people not to build relationships with one another because it's, you know, there just isn't enough. You're working three jobs. You're trying to just get by. And it creates a very isolating atmosphere. And that's part of the mental health impacts of poverty, displacement, the fear of gentrification. So I think if we can redefine how we're thinking about safety or community or how we're becoming interdependent, this is also part of my view of the apocalypse, by the way, um, (laughs) is creating interdependent societies where we're looking out for one another and not relying on police to do some type of external policing to make us feel safer because, oh, I have this conflict with my neighbor instead of talking to them about it, instead of relying on the fact that we know each other and we know where we're coming from. I'm going to call this external authority figure to use the threat of violence to make myself feel safer, to protect my property. I think all of these things are actually very related. Scarcity, violence, lack of trust, and like this perception of lack of safety. Yeah. There's a reason why people want to build communities that they want to want to live in, they, that they want to feel a part of. I mean, I think human beings are, aren't meant to live in a vacuum and you know, live alone. Totally. Um, but we're trained to look out for ourselves, mm-hmm. right? In, in this capitalist society that we're, we've grown up in, it's all about, it's a meritocracy. It's about those people who work hardest should reap the awards. But you know, even then, we have a lot of systemic issues that, you know, the playing field's not level. Totally. Right? And I mean, to, to be a little bit, you know, granola for a minute, I mean, I, I really like, I, I've been trying to like rethink community, the term community more in terms of like communication, uh, conversation. I'm sort of like, how are we viewing an Asian American conversation versus how are we viewing an Asian American group of people who are walled off in our own little corner? Mm-hmm. Like, how are we viewing the conversation of Los Angeles? How are we viewing the conversation of Little Tokyo? How are we understanding that these conversations will shift and grow and different people have different um, thoughts and stakes in it? And, and so as we can, if we're able to shift towards that, I mean, I think that there's more of an opportunity for us to... Um, rethink again the way we think about safety the way we think about neighborhoods and the way we think about our own participation or lack of participation yeah. in um the cities we live in um in terms of like i, I mean i i'm a big fan of like the concrete next steps I, I think like there are very there are ways you can get involved and organized in i feel like googling protect koreatown is like a really good way of doing that we're also on facebook also on facebook <laughs> you could do the google function on the facebook um, and find our could, page you can google the we are trying to open up to new folks to just to bring more people in to do that work but yeah i totally agree with that i think conversation and recognizing that systems and disinvestment lead to this idea of scarcity and we're isolated and i think that's a huge part of like meritocracy, which which is like I think there's scarcity and meritocracy are part of some of our cultures, and I don't want to like speak for the entire diaspora, but I think a lot of how model minority myth is structured in this country reinforces the idea of like democracy works, capitalism works, how it's how it manifests for Asian America can really reinforce some of the things that lead to gentrification and lead to us being like complicit in saying like I feel unsafe when I see this other person, so I'm going to resort to the police state. Totally. And, and and with that, too, I mean, I, I also just, again, like really, really practically, I feel like if we're able to, and again, this can be this can be viewed as a little corny, but I fully believe like if you have access to capital and money, like investing, by which I mean either 
investing a million or buying a piece of bread from, you know, like a smaller independent business that is community rooted and based in a neighborhood. Your local bike based business. Yeah. Your local bike goat coffee jam maker. (laughs) Um, I, I really believe like, you know, identifying those businesses takes you like five minutes all yeah. of five minutes and then it may be like an extra dollar or two dollars on top of that mcdonald's you know yeah. but it's it's like that's it may seem like not much but if we're all able to figure that out yeah that's what's going to keep like these businesses again just speaking about businesses not even residents i mean but. even you shouldn't have to want to give back to the community just because you get a tax break right totally it's all the good that can come from that doesn't exist if you don't put it that money to use and some people say, oh, it's because I want to save it for my kids. Or I want to save it for the future. But, you know, don't you want to make a good future for your kids instead of like the dystopian future we're hurtling towards at a high speed now, you know? Yeah. like Because we can have the cool clothes without having to create like a class-based, disaster-based dystopia. Like we can yeah. still have really cool clothing, but also create like a future where we are able to have a more equitable society where we like have affordable housing and people recognize that housing is a human right, not something you earn. Um, and still have cool clothes. Like this is possible. Yeah, feel like the insects is... will still be there. I think we've messed the up on global warming. Be there, yeah. So like, yeah. So we just need to there. like be like, can we have insect jam? Is there a way we Cricket can? Flower you know. is the next like sustainable flower, right? Oh lord. Yeah. I wonder what the protein content is and whether you can make gluten out of it. Bring me back on the show in like two months, and I'll be like, <laughs> this is a new cricket bread I've made. Um, I mean, also queer and trans APIs. <laughs> That's gonna be the show. <laughs> I'll make it work. We'll look forward to it, but <laughs> that'll do it for this episode of the collab cast. Thank you so much for coming and talking about all these things. Yeah. Hopefully our listeners are more educated and go do your research. There's a lot of stuff out there that you can read about, you know, I really hope you stuck with us. I really hope you stuck <laughs> with us. If you've made it this far, please tweet at Audrey, <laughs> Marvin and myself. We really need the validation. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I'll make you bread. Audrey, where I really can like approval. Cr- cricket, cricket, fire extinguisher bread. <laughs> you can have some of the regular bread flour bread for now. Audrey, where can people find your organizations and stuff? Um, so API Equality LA, we have a website that is on the internet. We also have a Twitter that is not super active, so don't look there. Look on Facebook and on our website. Our Facebook is actually probably where we get um, the most traffic. And then we also have a newsletter you can sign up for. Our website just needs to be updated. If someone wants to do web development, let me know for free would be preferable. It's <laughs> oh. also mental health awareness month. That's on my mind. Lots of months. Yeah. Totally unrelated, but yeah, Asian Americans, I think, and Pacific Islanders, the way in our communities, we don't necessarily talk about mental health. We should shift that and we should talk about it more. Mental health is important. Get at me for resources. That's all I've got. Awesome. And Sean, where can people find your work? Um, so you can check out Tuesday Night Cafe every first and third Tuesday of the month. Check us out online at TuesdayNightProject.org. Um, you can find me personally on the internet at downlikejtown.com or on the Twitters and the Instagrams at, at Sean Mira. Are, Are you, we plugging ourselves? Should I, I do that? I plug myself. Yeah. AudreyQuo.wordpress.com, K-U-O. And then you can find me on Twitter using your detective skills. <laughs> it's also going to be in the show notes down below this uh click 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 below for those of you who don't like a challenge you can just do that (laughs) and yeah tuesday night cafe is also streaming every first and third tuesday yes you can find that at tuesdayproject.org oh tuesdayproject.org slash watch live yeah and then you'll be able to chat with sarah's on that uh, check it out
You can um, also chat. Thanks to Travis the Trail for this month's intro and outro song. It's his new single, Excited. And for the Collabcast, I'm Marvin Yue, here with Audrey Ko and Sean Mira. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. We'll get excited.